Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to the award-winning Chris Hammer, an Australian writer just about to release Silver, which is the follow-up to his phenomenally successful crime novel Scrublands. Now this year he won one of the world's most prestigious crime writing prizes, the New Blood Dagger Award. And we talk all about that and also about how working as a roving journalist helped with his ability to pretty much write anywhere. Also, you can find out how his routine has changed between books and what his career taught him about storytelling. And we also chat about why his aims for work every day are perhaps a little bit looser than some other authors. I know there are writers, for example, who set themselves a word count, right? They sit down and they don't stand up unless they've written a thousand words or two thousand, whatever their personal target is. I'm not like that at all. Some days I'll write hardly anything. And the reason for that is because something isn't working, right? The plot's not working or the characters are a bit askew, something like that. So I'm trying to think that through. But I think that is time well spent. I don't think that's lost time or downtime. So so if I've only written a hundred words or something, um, I don't feel frustrated, particularly if, if by the end I've got that, you know, I've got the... The, the way through, if you like. There's loads more on the way just like that with Chris Hammer in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along. This is Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for listening. It's the show where we take a little sneak peek inside the working day of some of the world's most successful authors and we try and steal some of their scheduling secrets. Now, before we get on with today's guest, uh, Chris Hammer... Uh, I want to give a quick thanks for the voluminous Jeffrey Archer response. He was our guest on last last week's episode. Uh, and <laughs> now, I knew it would go both ways, the episode. I kind of figured that's how it would go down. Some weren't sure. I had emails from people all over the globe saying, oh, uh, that's Jeffrey being Jeffrey again. But other people really kind of bought into the the, the, the quite charming gruffness of his manner and also thought he did give some little golden nuggets that perhaps we haven't had before. So wh- however you thought of it, uh, obviously, I- I'm really appreciative for Jeffrey for coming on the show. And I really do thank you for your response, for sending me what you think over at writersroutine at gmail.com. Now, whatever you thought about last week's episode, I really think that you'll enjoy this one. 
Chris Hammer, he worked as a journalist, travelling all over the world, reporting on stories and learning how to write his own stories. Now, his debut, Scrublands, it was praised and commended by Val McDermid, been on this show, Anne Cleves, coming on this show soon. Uh, And he won a huge crime award the day before I interviewed him. So Chris had a fairly big night. So possibly forgive him if he sounds just a little bit tired. Uh, In the first part of our chat, we talk about the shocking start to his novel, uh, Scrublands, his debut uh, story and how that came to him. Uh, Also, a quick warning, our chat, the interview, is a little bit twisty and turny. It flits between Scrublands, the debut, and also Silver, which is out in January uh, next year in the UK. So you might have to keep up, but it's fine. I trust you. I think we make it clear But, you know, just try and keep pace with it as much as you can. Uh, We also talk about Chris's kind of rigorous work ethic, not just in getting the words down on the page and getting the story done, um, but because, because when you're a contracted author, you lose the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want. And we find out how Chris did really dive in to the work ethic that meant he had to get this story down on the page every single day. Now, Scrublands is all about Martin Scarsden, a journalist. It's set in Australia. They say, write what you know. And all about how he gets twisted up in a crime. We'll learn all about that in the chat. Uh, After we start, as always, with what Chris sees around him, where he sits down to write. All sorts of things, because I... I have a place I write at home, but I also write a lot when I'm out and about. I like riding on the train. I often go between on the train between Canberra and Sydney. It's about a four-hour trip. It's a very, very slow train. Um, I'll ride in cafes. I'll ride on planes. Um, I kind of find it stimulating. I know a lot of writers like their one place and their kind of silence, their cocoon, their writing cocoon. But I think years and years of being a journalist, particularly a journalist travelling on the road, um, has set me up. It's a, it's a great advantage, actually, to be able to write wherever and whenever. Well, let me take you back. You, you say you do have somewhere at home that you like to write. Let's just focus on that for a touch, if we can. Uh, tell me about it. Where is it in your house? What have you got around you? Talk to me about the desk. Talk to me about the art on the walls. Put yourself there for a second, Chris. Okay, it's a room down the end of, of our house. Um, it's the study I share with my wife. She has got so many books and has now buried, just overtaken most of the room to the point where she can no longer work there. Her desk is so inundated. She's an academic. She works at the Australian National University. Her specialty is international history. Um, on the walls are a lot of actually old collectibles that I picked up in my years as a uh, travelling foreign correspondent. Everything from, you know, pictures of Lenin from Moscow and Mao from China and bits and pieces from the Pacific and, and wherever. So there's, there's little bits of my former life dotted around the walls and essentially piles of books everywhere. And I have my old desk, which I bought 40 years ago in an old sort of second-hand store in Sydney that has now followed me around quite a bit. Um, and I have my space there. So that's, I do a lot of work there. Um, uh, but then occasionally I will travel, as I said, write and travel. And I'm really, really fortunate. My family has a house down on the south coast of New South Wales. It's my mother's house. It's a holiday house. It doesn't get rented out. So if I really need an intense burst of concentration and concentrated time, I can just go and lock myself 
away down there, it's perfect because then if I need to clear my head, I can walk on the beach while I'm thinking things through and then go back and start writing again. You mentioned that you're able to write on trains when you're travelling, on planes when you head down to your, your family home on the coast. Do you need anything consistent between all the places that you write that allow you to tap into your story? No, I'm pretty much good anywhere, I think. Um, sometimes I listen to music, sometimes I don't. Depending where I am in the book, um, if I can kind of know where I'm going, I can just write in dribs and drabs. But there's other times where you need a very concentrated effort, you know, a, a week or two, a really just so you can almost um, capture the whole mood of the book and the whole flow of the book in your mind at one time. And you can't do that if you're just doing I can't do that if I'm just doing it in bits and pieces. But other parts of the process, I, I can. Talk to me about the music. Anything specific? Do you, lyrics? I know quite a lot of authors I speak to won't have any lyrics at all in the music that they're listening to. It's mainly soundtracks. They'll change up the the music dependent on the pace of how they're writing? Um, no, I'm all, all right with lyrics uh, because I think when I listen to a lot of music, I don't really listen to the lyrics much anyway. I, I kind of listen more to the music, I think. And sometimes I'll be writing, particularly at home, and I'll just pull up random internet radio stations. Um, you know, there, there's a good one because of the time zone difference. You know, it's a, be the middle of the night there in Portland, in Oregon, in the States, you know, like a public radio station. I'll listen to that. I don't like people talking, though. I can't listen to talk radio. And, and so if it's just music, that's okay. And then, but then there are other times when I just don't feel like music. I just want silence. When you're in your room at home, if I were to walk into the study that you share with your wife, would I have any clue as to what you were writing? How much is your plot banded around your wall? Have you got... Are you brainstorming, mind mapping? Have you got a big whiteboard, post-it notes? No, nothing like that. I've got a background amongst other things. I was a journalist for many years, but including as a television journalist. And at one stage, I started filming my own stories and later on editing. So I've got quite... I've got large video screens, or like computer monitors. So all that kind of whiteboarding sort of post-it note stuff is actually on the computer as opposed to, you know, actually physically on walls or something. Um, and that's good because it's, when I go travelling, it's it's on my laptop, not quite as visible, not quite as useful. But down the coast, I'll just take a big external monitor down there and plug the laptop in and it's, and it's there. So, yeah, there is, you know, many writers, particularly crime writers, of course, have got a lot of background material they're writing that isn't actually in the book. So the most obvious one is timetables. My books, uh, Scrublands and Silver, are very much told from the view of a protagonist, Martin Scarsden. So you need to set out a timetable for him so you know, you're not fitting too much in a, a day. But then you need timetables of other characters. So, for example, you might have, you know, have you given the murderer enough time to get from point A to point B and back again, that sort of thing. So that's not going to be on the page of the book, but you need to know that it makes sense. So you're kind of mapping different characters. Um, both my books have maps in the start, you know, in the way that even though they're crime books, it's a bit like fantasy books, you know, how they have maps, which are now quite elaborate and done by a proper artist, not by me. 
But that started as me, just as a reference point for me in the background, making sure that the that the distances between locations in a totally fictional town were consistent through the book. You're talking about the timelines for a significant amount of the characters in your stories, both Martin, your protagonist, the murderer as well, the victim, all of this. How much detail do you put in these timelines? Um, just as much as is necessary. Um, I don't overdo it. I do often sketch backstories for different characters just to make sure I've, I understand their motivations um, and their alliances, if you like. Um, but that can all change as you're writing the book. So it's all, always a kind of a fluid process. The most important thing is the story that's going on the page. You know, all this other stuff is just support material. Um, so it's not something to be... You know, it's not something to waste time on, put it that. It's, it, it's there for a purpose. And, you know, I do want to concentrate as much time as possible on telling the story. They're just some of the tools. So having been a journalist has got some advantages and disadvantages for a fiction writer. But the advantages, the most obvious one is just the so-called discipline of writing. So I typically try and write every day and people think, oh, wow, what great self-discipline. But it's not, one, because I, I love doing it. So it's more like a habit. But also as a journalist, you, you can't say to your editor, oh, I don't think I'll file anything today. I'm not feeling inspired. So that there is that some of the basic tools of um, um, of writing that you get used to. You get used to being edited, for example. But I spent quite a lot of my time doing long-form television current affairs. So these are te television stories that are like 30 or 40 minutes long. And the thing, there's a couple of things about that that really I think have helped me. One is you're writing in three different dimensions. So you're writing what you're going to say, but you're connecting it with what other people are saying. You're also writing, you have to think of what pictures you have. So it's no good writing a, a sequence where there are no pictures um, or you need to invent them with graphics or something. And then there's the natural sound effects and there's music and things like that. So you're actually thinking about the words you're writing and what you're going to say, but you think of other elements too. And the other thing in a story like that, and it's the same with a magazine feature story, a longer, a longer form journalism, is you've got to lead the reader or the audience through the story. So you have to tell a story. News journalism, you're usually just kind of spraying out a series of facts. You put the most important ones at the top and the least important ones at the bottom. Uh, but that's not really telling a story. That's what you read in the newspaper or you see on the television news. But in longer form sort of journalism, you do need to tell a story in such a way that it engages the reader or the listener or the, or the watcher. Um, so I think I probably have benefited from that. What's the key to engaging an audience quickly in long form storytelling and keeping them there for 40 minutes or so? Well, often you, often you need a bit of a hook up the top. It's like, you know, this is why this story is important or some element of the story that will grab your attention. So if you, if you think about a crime book, often a crime book will have a, a dramatic prologue or failing that, 
a fairly dramatic opening chapter, something that's going to engage the reader yeah, right up right up front. So in a sense, um, the, the two mediums have that in common. How, how much were you consciously thinking about those tricks that you learned while you were writing Scrublands and Silver? Well, with Scrublands, actually, I was quite hopeless. So <laughs> I was learning on the job, seriously. And I was writing in my, in my part, uh, spare time, almost as a hobby. So I had a full-time job, rather demanding, family commitments, whatever. So I'm, I'm bouncing in. And Scrublands starts with a very dramatic scene. It's not giving anything away, so I spoil it because it happens in the first two pages of a book. And it's a prologue. And it's a priest in this um, drought-stricken town. Outside the church, he comes once a fortnight to take a service. He's laughing. He's talking pleasantly with his congregation. He goes inside to don his vestments and prepare for the service. Comes out five or ten minutes later with a high-powered rifle and shoots five people dead, okay? Um, and then the story proper starts with my protagonist, Martin Scarston, coming to the town a year later to write an anniversary story on how the town is coping. So it's a very dramatic start to the book, right? Um, and anyone who reads it will think, oh, that's such an obvious way to start the book. But actually, for, for the first couple of drafts at least, the book simply started with Martin arriving in the town to do this anniversary story. Um, and, and it was a very slow start. And I was thinking, oh, I, I need to jazz this start up a bit. But <laughs> so I was conscious that I needed to engage the, the, the reader. And yet it's a kind of, it's a dead town and it's the middle of the day and no one's outside. It's, 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 it's you know, like <laughs> sort of post-apocalyptic sort of thing. And then, of course, you know, it's so obvious, it's such a duh moment, but yes, I'll write, I'll write the prologue right. So I, I guess the instinct was there to, to the degree that I knew it wasn't working. But the answer, which in retrospect is so obvious, you know, I didn't have that at the start. I, I threw out, I think, hundreds of thousands of words with Scrublands as I was learning, going, this works, this doesn't work. Oh, I've got a better idea. Etc. I really don't want to do that again. <laughs> I'm not recommending that to anyone as a as a good viable you know process. Oh, get up in the morning, um, you know, make my kids lunch, go to work, work a ten hour day, come home, and maybe after dinner, depending if I've cooked or my wife's cooked, maybe still half an hour an hour to 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 write something, and then occasionally on a weekend have a more intense amount of time. Um, so really, I, I'd written two non-fiction books, um, which were very well received, but uh, made no money. So that was my expectations with Scrublands. I was just writing it really for my own satisfaction, thinking I would get it published, but, but nothing more. So it was really um, bits and pieces of time stolen here and there. I was fortunate at one stage, I... I um, I got a small grant, which wasn't actually much money, but gave me the opportunity to say to my employer, hey, I've got this grant, can I have six weeks off work? So I, I took two three-week blocks and did a, an amazing amount of work in that time and really that gave me the time to get a really good overview and work, work intensely at it. So it was... Now, this is, this is a lot of many authors 
because most authors don't earn enough money to um, to do it full time, right? And even those writers that are, are you know hugely successful commercially, pretty much all their first books were written in these sort of circumstances, right? Where they've got a full-time job and they're stealing moments t to write. So it's almost like everyone's been there at some point. Um, the challenge then, I guess, for me was how would, how would I be different when I had more time and more resources to write? So now talk to me about Silver then, the new one. Uh, You've reached some success with, with with Scrubland. It's enabled you to, as you say, completely change your process for this one. Talk to me about a day in the life of writing that. Yeah, so just just prior to um, Scrublands coming out or, or securing a deal for Scrublands, I lost my job um, and then took up another job. Um, but then I got a, a remarkably good book deal. I mean, and then including book deals in the US and the UK and in other territories. So suddenly I found myself in the position of being able to write full time. And that's, that's very rare in Australia. And I imagine it's possibly not quite as rare in the UK, but it would still, it would still be pretty rare and it's a very privileged position. So I had that. But the other thing I had was a publisher saying, um, Scrablands did very well and they said, we would like another book next year, as in you know this year, 2019. And I was saying, oh, when would you like it by? And they said, well, we want to publish in October. In Australia, that's a huge compliment because it's a Christmas book and it's a summer reading book, right? So it's, <laughs> it, it, so it's a huge compliment to be bought out. And I went, oh, well, okay, I think I can do that. When would you like a first draft? And they said February. And I went, oh, cow. So I really had to – my process was completely different, which was getting up every day and writing and writing until, say, lunchtime, and then often doing other stuff in the afternoon, you know, maybe housework or shopping or exercise, riding my bike, going for a swim, um, but often with, with the book bubbling away in my mind while I was doing those things, and often maybe doing a little bit, bit more writing in the evening or some editing, that sort of thing. So it went from a, a part-time hobby to a full-time occupation, with um, with a deadline that I wanted to meet. I mean, if I didn't meet it, the publisher would, publishers would have said, oh, well, that's fine, we'll just hold the book till next year or something. But I had a, a, I had a motivation there. And the other thing that changes too is that when I was running Scrublands, I was thinking, oh, this will eventually be good enough to be published. But I think all writers have some self-doubts and particularly, you know, some days it's just not working for you. And you oh, it's, it's never going to be any good. I'm never going to be any good. But I, I had a two-book deal, but both in Australia and in the UK, for the next book. So, I, I you know, I knew I, I, I had this uh, goal that I could shoot for. And that was, that was good. Um, the other thing that, that probably in retrospect was good about it, because... I, it was quite a tight deadline, and Silver's a big book. It's 140,000 words. And I did throw out the last 30,000 words and rewrite it again, even though I promised I wouldn't do that. I, but the benefit of that is I didn't really have too much time for navel-gazing or wondering about my ability or self-doubts because I was just so concentrated on, on you know trying to, trying to write a good book, you know. So... So the process between Scrublands and Silver, you couldn't imagine a greater contrast.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We'll be back with Chris in just a sec. Before that, very quickly, I want, I want to remind you of the myriad ways that you can help out what we do here at Writer's Routine. Uh, the first one is by getting involved with Libro.fm audiobooks. Uh, they are supporting us. They let you purchase. This is if you're in America, by the way. It will be coming to the UK uh, in 2020. That's the plan. Uh, so if you are in the UK, just give us a minute. Uh, for those in America to try and help out the show. Libro.fm, they let you purchase audiobooks directly from your favourite local bookstore. You can get more than 125,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers all around the country. Uh, With them, you get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that helps the writing community. And that is what we're about 100% on the show. Now, listeners of this show, if you're in America, you can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Just head to Libro.fm and enter the code ROUTINE. You get three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Libro.fm, enter the code ROUTINE. And with each listen, you can take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Uh, Look at me, I'm getting all Mark Maron now, rattling through the ads. Uh, The next thing that you can do to help us out is head over to patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Then you can just pledge uh, a tiny bit of cash every single month. And I know it's Christmas, so, you know, feel the festive spirit right now and just pay it back to the show. I, I think we've given you 80 episodes now, so that's 80 episodes of write, incredible writing tips for free from some of the planet's best authors. Just, uh, if you want to say thanks, do pledge what you can over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can get some badges, you can get some bookmarks to say thanks. Uh, and I, anything that you can spare is gratefully received, I promise. It's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. My name is Mark Billingham. I'm the writer of the Tom Thorne series of crime novels. Um, I have one major tip, but before the major tip, a couple of minor tips. 
buy yourself a fine, fine pair of lounging trousers, by which I mean pyjamas. Um, but actually, a good tip is that when you've saw finished work for the day, you think you finished work for the day, whatever that time of day that might be, and you give yourself five minutes to think about what you're going to start doing the next day and write it down. Just write it down without stopping. Don't correct your spelling mistakes. Don't correct punctuation. Just write, 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 write. A big sort of stream of consciousness stuff. Then turn the computer off and go to bed. And then you can look back at what you did the night before, the following morning, and it gives you a place to start. Right, let's get back into it with this week's guest on the show, Chris Hammer talking about his award-winning debut novel, Scrublands, and the follow-up, which is out next year in the UK, uh, Silver. We talk about the plotting of them in this part, how he ended up weaving five plot lines together, and how he kept track of them, and the maps that he drew to help him out. Uh, you see, because his writing as well is, is so open-ended, we talk about the mechanics of crime writing, and how he fits those in the twists, the red herrings. If he's writing as he's going, how is he making sure that he includes those? And we also find out how he makes sure that his characters are nuanced and rounded, even though they're the protagonist. They've still got their demons in their closet, even though the antagonist, uh, you still might like some of their qualities. There might be a reason why they're doing these things. And we pick things up with the plotting and how he even starts it. Uh, many days I, I really didn't. I'm not, um, I try and plot things out, um, but it never really works for me because I, you know, I'm continually getting a better idea and the stories evolve. Um, and there are days, I know there are writers, for example, who set themselves a word count, right? They sit down and they don't stand up unless they've written a thousand words or two thousand, whatever their personal target is. I'm not like that at all. Some days I'll write hardly anything and there, Reason for that is because something isn't working, right? The plot's not working or the characters are a bit askew, something like that. So I'm trying to think that through. But I think that is time well spent. I don't think that's lost time or downtime. So so if I've only written 100 words or something, um, I don't feel frustrated, particularly if, if by the end I've got that, you know, I've got the, the, the way through, if you like. Then there are other days... Um, where I know exactly what I want to write, the scene's mapped out in my head, I just sit down and write it. And some day, those days I can write a lot of words. It might be 2,500 words, for example, or 3,000 words. And there, are, and there are these occasional days where the story almost takes over. So you cha- it's almost like you're channeling it and you can't wait to get back to writing to find out what happens next. How does that work with when you're writing to such a deadline, when you've got to get this book in by February because it needs to be published in October, how do you feel about sitting around only getting 100 words done in one of your few precious days? Um, I was fine, actually. I mean, the, de- the deadline was not an absolute deadline. I don't think they ever are. And, and, if, and if at the end of the day, the book you know, were, was sort of fatally flawed or just wasn't up to scratch, we simply wouldn't have gone ahead with it. We would have... De- you know, delayed it and given more time. So it was, it was a deadline. It was something to shoot through, but it wasn't an absolute deadline. Not, not in the sense that there often is in journalism. Okay, and um, well, I was motivated, but it wasn't a matter of going. Here's a deadline. I didn't actually feel that much pressure. In retrospect, I'm thinking it's probably strange that I didn't. But the story was working. 
and I really liked what I was doing. I really liked the process of of writing. Um, I think when I was younger, I kind of liked the idea of being a writer, but I didn't like the process. And, you know, it was that thing I had to force myself to write. And for some reason, I think uh, now I, I just like doing it. So I... Like if I if the object was to meet that deadline, I would have written a book of maybe around ninety thousand words. That's the kind of target that publishers often like for a crime book, somewhere around that area, eighty to to a hundred thousand words. Okay, but Silver is one hundred and forty thousand words, and I threw out thirty thousand on top of that. So I kind of met the deadline, or I I, I more or less met the deadline. Um, and the book was published 1st of October in Australia. Um, but th- I was fortunate. It sort of fell into place. On the days where you are writing 100 words and you say you need to figure things out in your mind, h- how? what do you do when you are getting writer's block? How are you uh, working through those kinks in your story? Yeah, I don't think of it as writer's block. I, I see writer's block as something else often. Now, this is just my definition, but I think of that more of a, a writer beset by self-doubts, that the story's not working, that it's you know just going nowhere. For me, what I'm talking about is days when I'm still confident that it's a good story, that I'll get there. It's just some, some element that I have to think through. So I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not panicked. I don't think it's catastrophic. It's just some issue that needs to be worked through. And then and then on those days, as I'm going about my normal life, um, I, you know, I might be out exercising or, you know, picking up kids or something like that. You know, it'll still be sort of working away. And eventually I'll come up with an idea that works. In my books, there's quite a lot of moving parts, right? So... Scrublands and Silver have probably got four or five plot lines going on simultaneously and interwoven. So there's multiple crimes, there's personal stories, hence the length of the book, I guess. But, you know, if you change one element, you've got to be very careful that it's not sort of um, disrupting another element or it may need to change another story part of the storyline. So that's why you need this background material that you can reference. Oh, God, if he does that then that means you can't do this or, you know, that sort of thing. So, but that's, that you know, you want that in the background, but it's a kind of your own reference point. It's So, you know, the map's a good example of that. You know, the, Silver's got quite a intricate map in the front and it's absolutely fictional town, okay? It's not a fictionalised version of a real town. And the shape of the town... Um, evolves along with a story. Oh, it would be good. So, for example, it would be good if, if in this part he's out of mobile phone range, you know, f- for reasons of the mm-hmm. plot. Okay, so it evolves like that. Last question about the process of plotting. Yeah. Quite often on the show, authors will describe their the timeline of their plot like a car journey, you know, where you're starting... And then you're seeing events come through the windscreen to you. At what point do you know what's on the road ahead of you? And at what point do you know your final destination? Well, because it's more complicated than that, because in my books, there's several roads being travelled simultaneously. 
by the same person. So maybe it's a, it's a very windy road. I don't, I don't know what the analogy is. Um, look, it, it's easy, I think. So I'm a crime writer. One of the reasons I'm attracted to it is you can do so much more with crime writing than simply plot. There's setting, there's character, there's questions of morality, there's questions of motivation and psychology, there's all sorts of things. I think it's quite easy to, to have a dramatic beginning, you know, uh, often a murder in a crime story, okay. It's much more difficult to have a satisfying resolution, you know, one that's satisfying for the reader. It's not just who, who did it but maybe more than that. So both my books have uh, the protagonist, Martin, is on a kind of an emotional journey. So he's a different person at the end of the books than he is at the start. So that's part of what I'm thinking about as I'm thinking through plots and that what, what the emotional journey is. So, so there's, that, that's like a, a different plot line. How much do you know about where you want him to end up come the end emotionally? Um, I... I th- with Scrublands, I didn't. It came as a, uh, not as a surprise, but evolved over time because I was just trying to write a book. Okay, I'm, it's my hubby. I'm trying to write a book. With Silver, I'm thinking, oh, I've, I've, I've got an idea where this will end up. There's a difference in the, t- in the two books. In, the, in Scrublands, Martin goes, he's, he's a rather damaged journalist. He goes to this town, but he's a complete outsider, right? In Silver... The town is called Port Silver and it's his old hometown and there were traumatic events that um, affected him and his family when he was a child and there's still people in the town who know him. He's got an uncle and that. So right from the word go, I knew that his emotional uh, journey in the book was going to be about coming to terms with what had happened to him and his family as a child. So... In contrast to Scrublands, I sort of had a, an idea of what that emotional journey would entail, even even as I was still kind of formulating what the resolution of that would be um, and how it would kind of, if you like, link in with a crime story. Because you don't, you don't want to just tell two or three different stories and have them disassociated. That's not going to be a very satisfying mm. story, right? Uh, or... You know, for a reader, it's not going to be satisfying. So, but I did have that idea. So, so a really satisfying ending is important for a book, for a crime book, but pretty much for any book, right? And the other thing that's difficult, I think, is the pacing of a book. The, you know, the middle of the book. You don't want it to to lag, but you don't want it to be kind of artificially, yeah. um, you know, hyped, if you like. So. Um, and I'm still, I think, learning that. Um, I think it's, I think I've got it pretty right in both books, but I, I think I'd like to get better at that and better at the understanding of how that works. I'd written some nonfiction. Um, I couldn't afford not to be working. So I thought I'd just like to write a book. What sort of book am I going to write? Um, and I quite like crime fiction. I'm not an utter crime tragic. Um, as, as many people are, and you know, you meet a lot of people, and that's they read exclusively crime fiction. But I thought I like I like the idea of crime fiction because one, I don't know if I could write a purely literary book. You know, I'd have the skeleton of the plot, 
and yet there was some very fine crime fiction that has all all those other elements that I was um, speaking to. Um, so I had this idea, I'll write a, a crime fiction book. Then I had the idea, I think, of the setting. So Scrablands is, is in this rather dramatic Australian landscape. Um, this town out on this very barren plain, it's an irrigation town, but there's no water left in their river. So, so it's an economic crisis, the town. Well, I'd visited towns like that when I was re writing my nonfiction books during the, what's known in Australia as the millennial drought, you know, the, the, the worst drought in recorded history. Uh, that is in European settlement, um, although it may soon be eclipsed by another severe drought that's that's now commenced in Australia. So I, I had the setting. I had the idea of the journalist going to a town a year or so later to do a kind of anniversary story uh, of some events, unspecified events. That At that point, you had no clue what the anniversary story yeah, would be. Yeah, that's right. So I'd done, as a, a correspondent, I'd done some stories. I went... I. One that I didn't realise until someone brought it up. I went to Arche a year after the tsunami there. But the one I'm, I'm thinking more of is I went to a town in East Texas called Jasper where an African-American man had been tied to the back of a pickup truck by white extremists and dragged to, to, to his death. And I went there some months later not to do a story on the murder. You know, the, the, the perpetrators had been arrested. There was no mystery about the, the death. It was just an abhorrent, you know, almost unbelievably kind of evil crime. Mm. I went there to do a story on how the town was coping, um, but it was very racially d divided town in the deep south, right? So there's none of that in Scrublands. The only thing is the journalist going to do the story a year afterwards. And then I think the next thing I was thinking, well, what, what, what's the event? What's he, what's he doing? Um, and I had the idea of the priest shooting the people. And what I was doing, I was having a bit of... There's, a, there's quite a lot in, in Scrublands where I'm just kind of playing around with the ideas of a crime novel because I just didn't want to write a cookie-cutter sort of book. And I think I had the idea of the priest shooting people because inherent in that is a kind of a red herring in that people would jump to a conclusion of why a priest may have shot people because at the time in Australia there's a long-running Royal Commission into um, the sexual abuse of children in organisations um, focusing very much on the Catholic Church. So I thought readers may jump to an assumption about why the priest had shot the people um, and I think that kind of works because I've had people come up to me and say oh you know that Catholic priest who shot those people and I go oh actually he wasn't Catholic. There's this sort of this, mm. there's this sort of some inner, I wouldn't say prejudice, I'd say it's just so much part of the news cycle in Australia over a number of years. And everywhere as well. It's just, yeah, part, I'm it's, sure, yeah. it's just part of the consciousness. So you yeah. immediately think that. Well, how about this then? We spoke about the roadmap of the plot earlier on. At what point on your journey down this road is the ending coming clear to you? Well, well, it did at several stages. So I had one kind of reasonably satisfactory ending and then I get a better idea. But the whole point about the book, in many ways, both books, is it's not a, it's not a one-trick pony. So what's happening with the priest is, is in some way, I wouldn't say secondary, but just one of many, many plots there. So um, 
as as the different storylines change, so so do the conclusions. So you want to have a conclusion where all the ends are tied up, but there's something left for the reader's imagination. And one of the other things I was determined to do is I didn't want to have uh, black and white characters. I didn't want a bunch of goodies and a bunch of baddies. So one of the things that happens very quickly in Scrublands is Martin, the protagonist, meets people who are defending the priest, who's done, you know, committed this shocking crime. And so I wanted all the characters to be nuanced in a way. So Martin's the hero, the protagonist. We identify with him, but he's not a saint. He does things that are, I guess, morally questionable as a journalist. On the other hand, the priest is not a black and white character either. So you can, his actions may not be defensible, but they're understandable. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Chris for coming on the show. His brand new novel, Silver, is out next year, 2020, in January. Uh, You can catch up on Scrublands, the award-winning Scrublands, right now. Thank you so much. I know that Chris was, uh, he had had a big night, a big day the day before, you know, winning a proper one of the most prestigious crime prizes in the world so i just thank you for you know sitting in a booth with me for an hour uh, while he was quite tired and, and trying to get to the bottom of the secrets of how he writes i really appreciate that uh, now i've got a few things a little bit of homework for you in the next few weeks might be next year actually we're chatting to hugh montgomery on the show hugh uh has just lived a fantastic life in that he must be the busiest person ever. He runs ultramarathons, writes novels, is the chair of climate change committees. He's he's a practicing doctor. He learns a new skill every year. And really, we just try and get to the bottom of how he fits it all in. But if you want to get ready for that chat and get inspired, here's something that you can do. Google Guardian Hugh Montgomery article. And then, you, and then it will come up, should be one of the first two. You'll know what I mean when you see it. And then just read that article, a little bit of homework for you to get ready for the chat that's on the way in a few weeks' time. And you'll just be inspired as to how he fits it all in. So that's on the way. Next week, we're joined by the phenomenally successful Anne Cleves. She's on the show telling us uh, about all the stories that she's written. I think she wrote a book a year for 30 years, so she is highly prolific. We'll talk about that next week on Writer's Routine. In the meantime, make sure that you give us a follow, Writer's Pod on Twitter, and you pledge whatever you can to support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. And if you can, leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts as well. Right, I think that's us done for another week. Uh, All being well, I will see you Uh, next time next week on writer's routine bye hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.